My name is Kirk Dunn, and this is the Knitting Pilgrim Talks. I'm an actor, writer, and knitter, and I'm also known as the Knitting Pilgrim. I earned that title because in 2003, I was awarded an Ontario Arts Council Chalmers Grant to knit stitched glass, an installation of three large panels designed in the style of stained glass windows, which look at the commonalities and the conflicts between the three Abrahamic faiths. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. They took me 15 years to knit. And when the project was complete, my wife Claire and I wrote a play called The Knitting Pilgrim about my experience knitting stitch glass and my research into interfaith relations. One thing that wasn't covered in the play was the meaning behind the imagery in the knitted panels. So, this series explores each section in conversation because, ultimately, the project is about having conversations with empathy and curiosity about how we understand and sometimes misunderstand each other. Welcome to the Knitting Pilgrim Talks. Today's episode of the Knitting Pilgrim Talks, we'll be talking about the Christian tapestry or panel. And as a recap, the the panels are all structured around the dominant symbol of each particular faith. So in the case of Christianity, of course, it's the cross. And um, the the positive images of the faith I've I've placed inside the cross. And then the um, the images outside the cross represent some themes or ideas or or parts of the faith's history that Christianity is struggling with or, or working through or or I have questions about. And, um, and today we're looking at an image inside the cross, so a positive one. And, um, and when we, we look at the tapestry in the cross, we can see an image of uh, the crucified Christ. And then in behind his left arm, so on the right side of the panel as, as we face it, we can see the images of a lion and a lamb uh, representing this the paradox of the power and the vulnerability. Of, of Christ. And in fact, the promise of the kingdom of God, where there will be no predators or prey and the powerful will live alongside and, and share with the weak. And, uh, and I love a good paradox. I think uh, life is all about paradoxes. And to talk about this one, uh, we have joining us today, the Reverend Michael Corrin. Michael Corrin is an award-winning columnist and former, former TV and uh, radio host. He is the best-selling author of 18 books. He's an Anglican priest. And his most recent book, The Rebel Christ, was published just last year. And we are very fortunate to have him with us today. Reverend Corrin, welcome to the Knitting Pilgrim Talks. Thank you very much. By the way, I mean, of those 18 books, about four or five of them were on the bestseller list for a bit. Um, most of them weren't. And it I'd hate to, well, I should, I have to be honest, bestsellers in Canada, which is good, but, you know, bestseller in the US would be better anyway. <laughs> well, perhaps this one then, perhaps this next one, this last one. This, this one's done okay, it, again, in Canada um, and a little bit in the UK, but, you know, I, I, um, I'm a realist. <laughs> well, they are, you're a Christian, so that's a strange, um, that's a strange pairing because Christians are, are often pretty... Uh, I'm pretty optimistic. So, well, yeah, but I don't think optimism and realism actually are, are contradictory. And um, 
human nature is is flawed and broken and i mean as a priest i particularly see this a lot of the time and i see the most wonderful things and people always always delight me in their beauty and the, and their their goodness and their selflessness but at the same time i'll come across situations that, that i'm just appalled by so I, that's what i mean by right. by realism but it doesn't prevent me being optimistic about the the sacrifice of jesus and what would be promised by god right right well we, and that in fact is a, there's a bit of a you know paradox there that those those two things of i'm sure what you see is some incredible beauty and then also some some very upsetting things and and in, in your actually the, the title of your most recent book the rebel Christ. It um, just within that title, there's a paradox, or at least a, certainly an irony, uh, that that we modern day Christians don't often consider, because um, certainly Western Christians, we think of ourselves as as the establishment, the status quo. Uh, we're the ones in power, and uh, we're not trying to shake things up. We're you know trying to bring order and security uh, to things. How, how does your understanding of who Jesus was mesh with that idea? That's an interesting point you raise, actually, because um, Christianity or Christians are going through a state of transition now because the idea of being in power, that hasn't been a reality for some time. Uh, but in the psyche of some Christians, particularly in the United States, um, the mentality is that they still do have that power. And that power is also linked to, to issues of gender and race and so on and, and, and majority but of course, I mean, Christians in uh, most of the world, I'm trying to think here, in most parts of the world, don't really enjoy power. I mean, look, I, Poland will be unusual in that you have an overwhelming majority, I mean, almost exclusively, and the church still has a great significance. But countries where the Roman Catholic Church uh, enjoyed great power until fairly recently, you think of Ireland, Spain, Quebec, and Canada, I mean, that's, that's all gone now. Uh, I know Catholic clergy in Ireland who have been spat at in the street, um, even physically, uh, if not assaulted, intimidated. So things, have, I mean, I'm 63, growing up in Britain, the idea that that could happen in Ireland was beyond comprehension, but it has. But there is this, this duality, and as I say, particularly in the US and to a degree in Canada, uh, where there are Christians who assume they are the majority. Now, there are people who may have been born Christian, may have been baptized or simply be born to parents who were Christian. Does that make them Christian? I don't know. Uh, but, and in England with the established church, anyone who knows England well will know that Christianity has a limited influence, but it has an established church. The great irony, of course, is that, uh, the paradox is that the United States has the separation of church and state, but it's more influential, Christianity is more influential than almost anywhere else in the world. Um, but in terms of the founder, of the faith, the personality cult, and that's what it is. And that's not meant to sound pejorative or, or in any way uh, disrespectful, but it, it, this is a personality cult. And Jesus was anything but a powerful figure in his time. And there has been this enormous disconnect over the years. And I think it does begin with the, the adoption by, by Rome of Christianity. That's when the change really took place. But Jesus was someone who He's born under occupation. This is a, a country that has gone through. The, the Jewish people only really had two periods of triumph. Uh, once under Solomon, not really David. I mean, it was still being formed, but Solomon did have an empire. And, and 
they, they were a major player on the block. I mean, they, they weren't in charge, but they were one of the, one of the big boys. It didn't last very long. And then when the Maccabees defeated the uh, Hellenized Syrian army, and they had a brief period of power. But that's about it. Otherwise, they were exiled, they were occupied, um, and they lost a lot. Uh, so under occupation by the Romans, who weren't the cruelest of occupiers, some of the movies you watch about Christianity, you get this idea that all the Romans wanted to do was, uh, was oppress people. I mean, that, what they wanted to do was make money and have their way. And um, it's quite interesting that Pontius Pilate uh, was thrown out by the Romans because there were com enough complaints made and uh, Romans superior to him came in and said, you're out, you're not treating these people properly. So I mean, I'm not speaking here about Nazi Germany or anything, mm -hmm. but they lived under occupation. And the whole idea of their faith was that God was there with them. They were chosen, yet why were they being forgotten time and time again? His mother was a teenager. Um, in a way, he was a migrant. I mean, we can argue about that, but certainly growing up in Nazareth, probably in a cave, I mean, that may sound worse than it was, but Nazareth was very small. It's not even mentioned by Josephus, who was in charge of the revolt a few years later in Galilee. So it was very small, a lot of cave dwelling. Um, his father would have been a skilled worker, maybe a carpenter, we're not entirely sure. I mean, Jesus owns nothing. Um, he wanders around with the, the powerless, the poor, and to a degree, the marginalized and rejected. Uh, all of his statements are radical. Um, they're either enforcing the authenticity of the Hebrew scriptures or they're developing them. Uh, he calls for those who would despise Samaritans, Romans to be embraced. Um, he preaches forgiveness. His harshest words are for the establishment and the rich and the powerful. Um, and then he dies on a cross, which was reserved for, for those who were despised by all. So, he is very much a, a rebel, a radical, um, surrounded by people who were also rebels and radicals. He preached a permanent revolution of love and redistribution and, and, um, and how that was turned into something which uh, developed inquisitions and expulsions and pogroms and crusades is, 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 is breathtaking. And I, and I, I do think that the major problem, this is where you really see it all changing, and I'm not unique in saying this originally in any way, was when Rome adopted Christianity, an emperor adopted Christianity because mm -hmm. he thought it helped him win a battle. <laughs> that in itself is just obscene. <laughs> and then the trappings of empire are applied to Christianity. And, you know, I'm, I'm an Anglican, and part of what we do is an extension of that to a certain degree, some of what we wear. I have no problems with that particularly, but um, we often have forgotten what, what it's really about. And that's, that's a tragedy. So yes, the rebellious nature, the radical nature, the revolutionary nature, the, the, the anti-establishment nature of, of followers of Jesus, of the gospel way, I, I think is at the center, should be at the center of Christianity. Right, and I, I like what you're uh, saying there about this, uh, about that that vulnerability. That was, it sounds to me from, from what you're saying is the, the the paradox and the irony of of his whole approach is that he uh, succeeded through vulnerability, which is, um, in our society, uh, pretty much unheard of. We we're all about power, and certainly, um, you know, the the 
the loudest Christians that I hear, the ones in the media, and, and I, I take your point, they're mostly coming south of the border. Um, they're the ones who are about uh, uh, triumphalism and and power. And another thing I, I notice, I'd love your thought on this too, is this this idea with with power is is always looking to the to the future about what's going to happen when Christ returns, the triumphant. Uh, second coming, and or maybe the um, the the the, rap- the rhapsody or the um, the rapture, yeah, yeah the rapture. Uh, so, how does how does this preoccupation with um, with the future power uh, impact how people deal with what needs to be fixed today? Mm. Well, that's very interesting to consider because, um, I mean, first of all, I think. Uh, the whole idea of of the end times and so on um, is an eschatology. It's a misreading of scripture. Um, the book of Revelation is poetry. Um, there's much poetry and metaphor in scripture and to read it all literally is just, with all due respect, it's childish. It's not meant to be read that way. And um, But those who do, they're not consistent because they will try to, they'll work like crazy to control abortion or who can be married or at the same time, they won't do anything about climate change because it's all going to be okay in the end anyway. Well, we can't really have it both ways or they do have it both ways. So, um, The church has struggled with this because the, the early church, the early years of the church, there was a certainty that Jesus was returning. And uh, if you really study scripture, you can see that a lot of this is based on the idea that he'll be back. The church fathers, who are very early, a lot of what the church fathers are doing is trying to develop a theology that deals with the reality that maybe there's not going to be the return of Jesus in the near future. And you have Christians who are obsessed with Armageddon, which they misunderstand because Megiddo is just a town where they were, it was back in the First World War. All empires have fought there because it's a great crossroads of uh, a physical crossroads and a clashing of cultures and empires. Um, but no, I mean, Jesus spoke. I mean, when he fed the poor, I mean, everything he, he so much of what he did was it wasn't about living a, about the, I'll put it this way caring about the future, knowing that there is going to be an end to the story doesn't preclude you, in fact, mustn't preclude you from or prevent you from trying to change what you live in at any given time. You don't, you're not passive towards evil and injustice because it'll all be okay in the end. That's, that's not what the Christian narrative is about. It's about trying to build something, a new Jerusalem, if you like, while we're here, always with the confidence that the end has been written, that, that there is a salvation, there is a certainty, there is a conclusion. But those two beliefs mustn't be allowed to to triumph one over the other. When people say, I'll pray for you, I mean, this is a constant and it's a terrible problem. Uh, And why are you saying that to me? I'd like you to pray for me, but why are you telling me that? Are you telling me that so you can feel good about it or that I will feel good? And if it's, I'll pray for you, but I won't do anything for you, then it really is hideous. And we hear this a lot. And, and I've written about this. I think I wrote about it in the book um, that after a terrible gun massacre, yet another gun massacre in the US, there'll be conservative Christian politicians saying our prayers are with the victims 
and then they'll take their check from the National Rifle Association and vote against gun control. Well, that that is obscene because no, you're not praying. And if you are praying, your prayers are, are worthless because you don't understand what prayer is. In addition to prayer, there is effort. So you work to change things, but you also have this communication with God. You pray, you listen, you're formed, and prayer changes us. Well, then it changes God. Um, so there's a lot going on in being a Christian, and often it's been diluted down to something very simplistic. Um, and often it's been reduced to a single issue. You can, I mean, I, about eight years ago, when I had rather a change of, um, of belief, my people say, oh, you know, you change them so much. I didn't actually. And my belief in Christianity remained, in fact, it deepened. I say the creed with more conviction than I ever did. That's not what people are upset about. They're upset about the fact that I say the marriage between people of the same gender is, is a godly, beautiful thing. And it's about commitment, not about gender. And that, that one, even beyond the abortion issue, which is huge, but if you dare to say that those made in the image of God, born, born with an attraction to people of the same gender, just as I'm born with an attraction to someone of the opposite gender, that those people, if you say those people are equal in the eyes of God, do not have to be celibate um, and can be in, in loving relationships and they should be approved by the church, if you say that, you're no longer a Christian, even if you say the creed with absolute belief. Right. So, so this is the reductive nature of modern Christianity, but it's not actually exclusively modern. We think it is, but there's always been an issue. Uh, but we didn't see it. To, the social media and 24-hour news, we see a lot more of it today. Um, and it goes up and down. It's not linear. There was a time in England when everyone was in Church of England, if you weren't in church on, on a Sunday, then your employer may well hear of it. And you'd be asked why you weren't. And if you couldn't provide a, a, a decent answer, you could lose your job. But, well, do we really want that again? When the Roman Catholic Church told people how to vote and had iron control over, over everybody. So we, we don't, historically there's always been problems. The problems are different today. Uh, I think we're in a healthier place because we have to defend Christianity if we want to in the public square. Um, but just on that point, there are people, there are those hardened atheists out there who think they're being really clever uh, when they abuse people who believe, but they don't really matter. There aren't that many of them. Most people are quite interested. They don't know. Um, there are Christians who believe that every non-Christian is desperate to hear about the truth of Jesus. That's not true. But equally, people are not particularly hostile. They're often just indifferent. And whenever I write a column in the Star or the Globe or, or whatever, talking about Christianity, I'm inundated with emails from people saying, I didn't know that. Wow, that's quite interesting. They, they do want to know. So if you do present, it's not that media is anti-Christian. Media is tired of, of ultra-conservatives disguising their beliefs as Christianity. They're very different things. Right, that uh, that reduction that you talked about, that bringing of things down into one single uh, issue, I think is probably what most people think about. Uh, well, many things, but in Christianity in, in particular, oh, yeah. that oh, you know, it's just about if you're a Christian, then you have to believe what that very loud person who says he's a Christian is saying, and in fact, uh, in fact, we don't. Um, and there's the in 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 your book, you talked about. Um, 
uh, Jesus being um, sent to provoke the complacent and uh, and empower the, the vulnerable, which um, you know I I, I think is uh, an excellent point, and I think also that while that is a I think an essential message, I'm seeing that it's also being um, a, sometimes twisted um and and you mentioned this the abortion fight uh, that's that's happening it's just uh blown up with roe versus wade down at the south of the border so how, how do you respond to people who would would see the the vulnerable or the in need of protection as being the the unborn uh, fetus how, how do you respond to those people well i think there's something to that and i've not met anybody who has said i just love abortion it's a great thing and if you've done any work with people with disabilities and so on, um, and they're often some of the most interesting people to talk to about this because they see both points of view, um, that there are nuances. And, and, and I, I, I said this in the book, if we'd like abortion rates to drop, and I think most people would actually, there are things we can do. And in an American context with the anti-abortion movement, um, I mean, it's not an, it's really not an issue in Europe. I mean, I can speak with some confidence about the UK. It, that that not, ain't going to happen. I mean, there's just no appetite for the anti-abortion movement. And I don't think it'll happen in Canada either. There are people who'd like it to, but I don't think it will. But if we take the US as an example, if you had socialized medicine, if you had public daycare available to everybody, if you had really good modern sense ed in every school, um, if you had enforced paternity payments, uh, if you had all of this, um, abortion rates would, would, would plummet. We know, because every time it's been tested, that's been the result. Uh, there are women don't get pregnant and just because they want to have an abortion. And, and most women who get pregnant, well, they're the different responses they have. But those who know they can't go through with it because they know they'll get no medical support uh, during the pregnancy, that when their child is born, their child will be born into poverty, that fathers are absent, they'll get no help from there. Um, they were never told about sex ed. You'd be amazed at the ignorance of some, or ignorance sounds too harsh, just lack of knowledge. Um, can't get hold of contraceptives. So all of these things, and also if you, if you try and work to eradicate poverty as much as possible and also empower women, abortion rates will plummet, but most of all of those policies are opposed by the very people who say that we should defend the unborn and abortion should be illegal. Well, that's a contradiction. It's not about, it's not about the unborn. It's not about the child in the womb. It's about controlling women. Um, there, is, there are those people who want every argument to, to be, every, the line has to be rigid straight. Well, life isn't like that. Life simply isn't like that. Uh, I, I deal with people all the time who come to me in great pain and and sometimes I hear this story and I can see the other side of the story, but you, you have to be able to, to bend a little bit. And you know, in a perfect world, abortion wouldn't, we wouldn't be discussing it because everybody will be happy all the time and taken care of. And, but that's not the world in which we live. And the life of the mother does come first. It's the teaching of, of actually, it's the teaching of Judaism. Uh, all of the monotheistic faiths, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, have traditionally taught that life begins with the breath, the first breath, not a conception. This notion that life begins at conception is, is, is fairly modernist. Uh, but I'm not going to sit here and pretend it's easy. 
how do I feel about a, a child with disabilities being aborted? Do I, do I say, yes, absolutely. Um, no, I, I, I die a little inside. So it's not, I mean, life is not black and white. It, it really isn't. And you can't know humanity and believe that to be the case. Uh, it, it, I mean, some issues are, are very straightforward. And I think issues of sexuality are much easier to deal with. Uh, I simply think it is ungodly and unchristian to treat gay people as being in some way sinful or broken. They're not. They're as perfect as anybody else. Abortion is slightly different because there is another factor. But listening to all of the arguments and, and, and knowing human experience and uh, would, I mean, you, you've got to realize how extreme the anti-abortion movement can be. Um, a 14 year old girl who is raped and becomes pregnant, you have to have that child. Well, when you hear arguments like that, you realize that there's no other, I mean, there's no other place you can be except with an argument that defends the choice of women. Um, I, I've spent a fair bit of time now dealing with uh, people in the pro-choice movement, and I don't find extremism. I don't hear extremism. I mean, the attacks on Planned Parenthood, the vast majority of what they do has nothing to do with pregnancy. I mean, a lot of it is just caring for women and women's health because a lot of the places they work, there is no help for women. And, and also, we know that the, the people who will be most targeted by any ban on abortion put aside the unborn. This is not wealthy women. It's not middle-class women. Generally, it's not even going to be white women. It's going to be racialized women. It'll be poor women. Um, they're the ones who can't move to a different state. They don't have money or resources. So there's a lot of sociology and economics involved as well. But once again, I'm not going to pretend, as some people do, it's just right and wrong. And, you know, there was a time when you could compromise, discuss with the the anti-abortion movement, even if you want to call it pro-life movement. That's long gone. That's long gone. Uh, the way they throw away, throw around words like murder and Holocaust and uh, the adoration of Donald Trump and their homophobia, that wasn't always the case. I mean, I do blame the evangelical church for that. Uh, there was a progressive Catholic movement, a seamless gar garment movement, it was called, that was against abortion, but had much more compassion. And they realized that there had to be dignity of the human after birth with economic help and support and often opposed to the death penalty and, and, and that sort of thing. But it's become very radicalized. Well, I really appreciate what you have to say there about the uh, life is not uh, black and white there. And, and in fact, that's, you know, very much what I was um, you know, evoking in this, in this particular um, the section of, of the tapestries, and certainly within the entire um, the project, which is that there are those paradoxes, and we need to uh, sit in the questions. It's that the people who are finding quick answers are are the ones who are going to get us into trouble. Rather, we need to sit in those questions and realize that there can be the opposite thing going on at the same time, and that is that's who we are and and how we can relate to one another. Uh, yes, very much. I mean, faith is a dialogue and sometimes even an argument. And I remember the first time I went to Israel in 1979. So I think I was 19. 
and um, going to visit a yeshiva, a religious seminary, not because I had any, <laughs> wasn't going to join or anything. And, and just seeing these very young men actually spending the whole day arguing with each other, just taking not even a line, sometimes just a word of scripture and arguing about it. Um, the faith isn't uh, despotic or, or dictatorial. Faith is just a loving God and you're having a dialogue and, and sometimes why why which happens throughout the hebrew scriptures lama why why uh, and yeah the, this formulaic approach that you do see sometimes i mean not, not all i mean there, there are conservative christians who are, are sophisticated but i, mean, I have to say that uh, one of the ones i come across i i wouldn't say there was sophistication there but worse than that, it's, it's twisted the Christian faith into um, almost a tick box uh, of behavior. Right or wrong, 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 right, wrong. As if God is up there and, you know, before I let you in, what did you think about this issue? Oh, surely not. When, when this, is, this is to, it's politicizing, it, it's, it's to infantilize is to trivialize uh, and once you do that you're in all sorts of trouble Karan, thank you so much for spending time with us today we really appreciate your insights oh it's my great pleasure thank you if you would like to contact the reverend michael Corin, you can find him on twitter at michael Corin. you can reach him via email at mcorin at simpatico.ca or through his website michael Corin. This has been an episode of the Knitting Pilgrim Talks. We'd like to thank the Ontario Arts Council for their support of this conversation series and their funding of Stitch Class, and the Toronto Arts Council and the Canada Council for the Arts for their support of the Knitting Pilgrim Show. If you'd like to hear more conversations like this about interfaith matters, Stitch Glass, and knitting, please check out our episodes at kirkdunn.com or the Knitting Pilgrim YouTube channel.